The following broadcast is released under a Creative Commons license. I believe in Jesus Christ, the only Son of God. I believe He lived and died, and that He rose again. I believe and trust in Him. Ascended into hell, Christ our living head will one day come again to judge the living and the dead. I believe and trust in Him. I will trust in my Redeemer, sing of His love that lasts. Pastor Yeshua, you've been listening to Creed by Richard Jensen from his album, Order of Service. By way of introduction, pastor is an acrostic which stands for preaching all salvation through one Redeemer. Our Redeemer, Yeshua, Jesus, is the Hebrew name for the Lord. It means Yahweh, the Lord, is salvation. Translated from Hebrew into the Greek language, the name Yeshua becomes Jesus. The English transliteration for Jesus is Jesus. This program deals with apologetics, questions on and about God, the Bible, and the Christian faith. I take questions and seek by Scripture to give answers and encouragement for everyone, including the tough-minded living in today's skeptical society. And now, let's join Pastor Yeshua. Welcome to Pastor Yeshua. In this episode, we take a look at the central claim and the cornerstone to Christianity. Even outside of Christianity, the resurrection of Jesus of Nazareth is an issue for which the answer for every man, woman, and child bears eternal consequences. Since the stakes are so high, each person owes it to themselves to carefully examine and weigh the evidence before making a conclusion. This episode intends to examine the classical information and excuses which have historically been offered to explain the resurrection of Jesus versus the historical biblical record that Jesus rose from the dead. Let's pray. Lord, your word reveals that you are the creator and giver of every good and perfect gift. We also know that there is no greater gift which you have given than that of the gift of eternal life, which comes through grace, by faith in the death and resurrection of your Son, Yeshua Jesus. 
I pray that you, by your mercy we might now hear the good news of your offer of eternal life. I pray that hearing we might receive, and that having received, all that do so would give you honor, glory, and praise forevermore. In Jesus' name, amen. As we consider the history of mankind, there is perhaps no more controversial topic than that of Jesus' resurrection. Now, before we casually dismiss this too quickly, let's consider why this is. If we were living in Jesus' time and after his death we began to hear news of his resurrection from the dead, surely our first response would be one of doubt. After all, in the skeptical natural world to which we are all accustomed, dead people simply do not come back to life. To complicate matters, in Jesus' case, we have someone who did miraculous things even before his resurrection. First, Jesus fulfilled some 300 prophecies concerning the details of his birth and ministry the virtual mathematical impossibility of any person other than Jesus fulfilling 48 of the 300 was discussed in a previous episode entitled, Jesus the Messiah Has Come. Assuming we recover from these odds, we must next consider the three-year ministry of Jesus. During Jesus' relatively short earthly life, Jesus worked numerous miracles, including healing the blind, the deaf, the lame, the dumb, and the sick. Jesus fed thousands with a child's lunch, walked on water, and raised the dead. All the while, Jesus made statements and claims about himself equating himself as being equal to God. As you will recall, we documented and discussed Jesus' various statements, actions, and claims to the divinity in the episode entitled, Who Do You Say That I Am? Despite all this and more, many in Jesus' day, like many today, required more evidence. The prophecies, the miracles, the wisdom, the statements and claims were not enough. Essentially, like many today, people didn't believe Jesus and demanded, prove it. For those who made such demands in Jesus' day, Jesus responded in Matthew chapter 12, verse 39, chapter 16, verse 4, and Luke 11, verse 29, by calling those making such demands an evil generation who seek a sign, and there shall no sign be given but the sign of Jonas the prophet. In other words, Jesus clarified to those close to him that what he was referring to was his imminent crucifixion, death, and resurrection, which, like the prophet Jonah, would be an event which would take place over the course of three days and nights and would defy the definitions of what is possible or natural forever. Essentially, Jesus himself called attention to the future event of his resurrection from the dead as a sign, i.e. proof, that would once and for all settle the doubt for those who truly are willing to see and hear the truth. As such, clearly the issue of the resurrection is one which has profound and everlasting significance if true. If false, 
then likewise the topic is still one which changes the landscape of everyone's lives. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 14, Paul the Apostle is the first to state the importance of the issue of Jesus' resurrection in the following terms. Quote, And if Christ be not risen, then our preaching is vain, and your faith is also vain. Yea, and we are found false witnesses of God, because we have testified of God that he raised up Christ, whom he raised not up, if so be that the dead rise not. For if the dead rise not, then is not Christ raised. And if Christ be not raised, your faith is vain, ye are yet in your sins. Then they also which are fallen asleep in Christ are perished. If in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men most miserable. But now is Christ risen from the dead and become the firstfruits of them that slept, unquote. Here, Paul makes no bones about it. Paul pinpoints the fact that Jesus' resurrection from the dead is pivotal in many critical respects to everything we believe. If Jesus is not risen, then the reality is that he and others who have preached Jesus' resurrection have engaged in a futile, pointless endeavor. Further, those who have placed their faith in Jesus' resurrection have been duped into a hopeless, useless belief. Lastly, Paul recognizes that since he and others have been preaching the resurrection, if they were aware that this was not factual, then he and others are false witnesses. Ultimately, Paul points out that the central message from Scripture was that the Messiah would come in the fullness of time to save his people from their sins. Clearly, Jesus identified himself, followed by his disciples, by Paul and others who likewise identified Jesus as the Messiah. Given this, Paul acknowledges that if Jesus did not rise from the dead, then working backwards, an entire series of beliefs begins to crumble. Since Jesus predicted his resurrection and cited the event as proof of his identity, then Jesus' identity as Messiah is now at issue in question. If we can't believe that Jesus was correct about that, then what else was he mistaken about? If Jesus wasn't the Messiah, yet scripture is still true, then we are still in our sins, waiting patiently for a Savior who can deliver us from our sins. Since so many prophecies clearly point to Jesus as the Messiah, now we must reevaluate the validity of Scripture. If Scripture is not true, then we must consider throwing out the Bible entirely. We can forget about creation, forget about God, as, and as a consequence, we are left with the premise that all of us are here as a result of random chance and accident. In the end, there is no hope other than a few scant years each human lives, and then we each die, we are buried, and we are forgotten. In contrast, we have the clear record of Jesus' resurrection, which, 
while remaining a flashpoint for debate, nevertheless clearly provides all who will believe real hope. The resurrection is the keystone event in history which validates scripture and which opened the doors forever to reconciliation between God and man. Thus, each of us is called to jury duty to evaluate the merits of the crucifixion, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, and ultimately to once and for all render a verdict to Jesus' question, quote, Whom do you say I am? Unquote. Now, as we approach investigating and exploring Jesus' resurrection, I propose that there are 12 presumptive facts regarding the resurrection which must be stated and evaluated. They are as follows. 1. Jesus lived as a historical person. 2. Jesus was crucified. 3. Jesus died. 4. Jesus' body was placed in a known, accessible tomb. 5. Jesus' disciples were scattered abroad after Jesus' crucifixion. 6. The tomb where Jesus was buried was empty three days after his death. 7. A large number of the disciples, both separately and and together said that they saw, touched, and ate together with Jesus after his death. 8. After the reappearance of Jesus, the disciples were psychologically transformed. 9. The resurrected Jesus was central to the early church's message. 10. The phenomena of the resurrection was central in Jerusalem where there were still first-hand witnesses of the facts who were still alive as the movement began. 11. The church was born and grew as a direct result of the resurrected Jesus. 12. Saul of Tarsus was converted from a Pharisee who actively persecuted believers to the chief proponent and apologist of Christianity. Let's examine these presumptive facts. 1. Jesus lived. Even by conducting an internet search on Jesus with a secular source like Wikipedia, we receive the summarized answer saying, Quote, virtually all modern scholars of antiquity agree that Jesus existed historically, unquote. Even the footnotes reveal that those very few who have concluded that he did not exist admit that they are in the obscure minority. So the issue is not existence, but rather his death. 2. Jesus was crucified. First of all, in a global sense, secular sources concede that no credible historian rejects that Jesus was crucified. For example, even the highly skeptical co-founder of the Jesus Seminar, John Dominic Crisson, writes discussing Jesus' crucifixion, quote, 
that he was crucified is as sure as anything historical can ever be, unquote. According to the atheist scholar Gerd Ludman, quote, Jesus' death as a result of crucifixion is indisputable, unquote. Nevertheless, evidence from non-Christian sources include the following. The Jewish historian Flavius Josephus, who lived from A.D. 37 to A.D. 101, wrote, Now there was about this time Jesus, a wise man, if it be lawful to call him a man, for he was a doer of wonderful works, a teacher of such men as received the truth with pleasure, he drew over to him both many of the Jews and many of the Gentiles. He was the Christ. And when Pilate, at the suggestion of the principal men among us, had condemned him to the cross, those that loved him at the first did not forsake him, for he appeared to them alive again the third day, as the divine prophets had foretold these and ten thousand other wonderful things concerning him. And the tribe of Christians so named from him are not extinct at this day. Unquote. The earliest available manuscript of the Babylonian Talmud, Tractate Sanhedrin, Folio 43a, penned in the year 1342, says, On the eve of Passover they hung Yeshu the Nazarene. And the herald went out before him for forty days, saying, quote, Yeshu the Nozarene will go out to be stoned for sorcery and misleading and enticing Israel to idolatry. Anyone who knows anything in his defense must come and declare concerning him, unquote. But no one came to his defense, so they hung him on the eve of Passover, unquote. Here, the writers of the Talmud took their job seriously. These men were Jews who did not believe that Jesus was the Messiah. They were not Christians, but they documented Christ's crucifixion regarding the reference to being quote-unquote hung without any reference to another form of execution. The assumption in the first or second century would be that quote-unquote hang refers to crucifixion. Evidence from Roman sources include Cornelius Tacitus, who was a Roman historian who lived circa 56 to 120 AD. In his annals, Tacitus stated, quote, Nero fastened the guilt and inflicted the most exquisite tortures on a class hated for their abominations, called Christians by the populace. Crestus, from whom the name had its origin, suffered the extreme penalty during the reign of Tiberius at the hands of one of our procurators, Pontius Pilate, and a most mischievous superstition thus checked for the moment, again broke out not only in Judea, the first source of the evil, but even in Rome." Unquote. Here again, few would argue that crucifixion would not qualify as the quote-unquote extreme penalty, which was the method chosen by default by Rome in Jesus' day. Lucian of Samosata was a Greek writer 
and a rhetorician who lived 120 A.D. to 180 A.D. Lucian wrote, quote, The Christians, you know, worship a man to this day, the distinguished personage who introduced their novel rites and was crucified on that account, unquote. If we can believe these and other sources regarding the crucifixion of Jesus, then surely we must believe that Jesus lived. After all, how does one credibly say that a person was historically crucified unless that person was historically alive first? 3. Jesus died. The fact of the matter is that most skeptics spend more time asserting that Jesus did not really die during the crucifixion. Instead, many of the various assertions claim that Jesus somehow survived his crucifixion and, of course, died later, either of natural causes or some other factor. But to suggest that surviving crucifixion was a possibility utterly dismisses or denies the brutal and savage torture which this historical ritual of execution entails. There are many medical authorities who have done research on the crucifixion. Based upon the gospel accounts, we know that during the week in question, Jesus had spent the entire day Wednesday preparing for the Passover. At evening, around 6 p.m. or after, Jesus conducted the Passover in the upper room with his disciples. Shortly thereafter, Jesus and his disciples adjourned to the Garden of Gethsemane. Once there, you will recall that Jesus prayed several times while his disciples slept, indicating it must have been very late at night. Luke, who was a physician, records in his gospel how while Jesus prayed, he was in quote-unquote agony while he prayed and sweat great drops of blood. This observation concurs even today, although rare, with a condition referred to as hematidrosis. This medical condition usually presents itself only during events of extreme emotional distress. Sometime during the night, the temple officials led by Judas Iscariot arrested Jesus. Over the course of the next several hours, between about 1 a.m. and daybreak, Jesus was bound and escorted back and forth some two and a half miles to attend six trials. During these religious and civil trials, though innocent, Jesus was repeatedly accused, questioned, mocked, ridiculed, spat upon, slapped, and struck by various individuals. Around 6 o'clock a.m. on Thursday, Mark chapter 14, verse 54, and John chapter 18, verse 18, record Peter warming himself by the fire during this period. Consequently, we look at the totality of the events, we would conclude that Jesus was sleep-deprived, weakened, stressed, and likely very hungry, dehydrated, and cold from exposure since none of his accusers would have been concerned for his welfare. Eventually, Pilate convicted and sentenced Jesus to death by crucifixion. Sometime around 9 o'clock a.m., as was the custom, Jesus was scourged in the preparation for his crucifixion. Historical records detail how the Romans would strip a person of their clothes and would tie him with their hands above their head with a back 
with their backside exposed. Then they would take a whip called the flagrum, which had a handle about a foot and a half long. The end of the handle would have a minimum of five straps of different lengths. Each strap was fitted with jagged bones or balls of lead with jagged edges wound into the end of the straps. The Romans would bring the whip down over the back of the individual and all of the balls of lead or bone would hit the body at the same time. Each lash of the flagrum would dig into the body of the victim in different areas and when removed would severely lacerate and or tear out portions of the victim's skin and tissue. As each lash of the whip continued, the damage sustained would increase since deeper and more sensitive tissues, muscles, and blood veins were exposed. By law, the Jews would only permit 40 lashes to the accused. In order to prevent miscounting and breaking the law, they never did more than 39 for caution's sake. The Romans, however, had no such law. The Romans could lash as many times as they wanted. Many times, because the Romans were adversarial with the Jews, if a Roman had opportunity to whip a Jew, they would strike 41 or more lashes out of spite to the Jews. So it is likely Jesus suffered at least 41 lashes. Remember, the purpose of the Roman scourging was to bring the condemned as close to death in preparation for the crucifixion as possible. Thus, the Roman centurion in charge would continue the process until they were satisfied the condemned was in fact close to death. Consequently, the flogging would leave an individual as an unrecognizable mass of torn, bleeding tissues suffering from blood loss, exhaustion, and shock. After the scourging, the Romans fashioned a crown of thorns to mock Jesus. While there are several plants which could be involved, the one most often in question has very sharp thorns, typically measuring about one inch in length. Matthew records that the Romans gave Jesus a robe and a staff along with the crown to mock his claims of being a king. One of the Romans used the staff to strike Jesus over his head as he was wearing the crown of thorns. This obviously would have driven the numerous thorns deeply into the sensitive head and scalp causing extreme pain and profuse bleeding. After the flogging, it was customary to have the condemned carry the crossbar or patibulum on his shoulders out of the sight for crucifixion. The patibulum usually weighed 75 to 125 pounds. The distance from the point of the praetorium where the scourging took place to the crucifixion was about two-tenths to one-third of a mile as the crow flies. We don't know how far Jesus carried his cross. All we know is that at some point, Jesus was so exhausted that another man had to carry his cross to the execution site. Some later traditions offer that Jesus fell as many as three times with the cross on his way. Perhaps this story is to explain why it is necessary for someone to carry his cross. If so, anyone falling under the weight of even a 75-pound piece of wood would greatly aggravate any pre-existing injuries, not to mention creating new injuries. 
In any case, anyone in Jesus' condition who was forced to carry 75 pounds any distance would only serve to further complicate the already grave condition that he was in. Around noon on Thursday, the crucifixion itself began. Once at the execution site, as was required by Roman law, the Romans attempted to give Jesus a drink of wine mixed with myrrh or gall as pain relief. Jesus refused the drink. The Roman executioner then drove a large square spike through each of Jesus' wrists. Upon doing so, the condemned was then lifted up along with the patibulum onto a vertical wooden beam already in place. As the condemned hangs suspended, a single additional nail is delivered through the arch of both feet together. In order to breathe while hanging on a cross, one had to push oneself up on one's legs, otherwise one would asphyxiate. However, the weight and forced exertion on the condemned feet would cause excruciating pain due to the nail piercing both feet. Consequently, the severe pain would limit the amount of time for the condemned to continue pushing with their feet and eventually they would be forced to drop back down and hang from the nails in the wrists until another breath was required. This up and down routine would continue to facilitate breathing and could last anywhere from several hours to several days until the condemned ran out of strength collapsed, and died. In most cases, the Romans would break the legs of the condemned to prevent their ability to raise themselves, and thus the death was hastened. In Jesus' case, we are told that Jesus hung on the cross for about three hours and died about three o'clock p.m. On this event, the Romans came early to break everyone's legs on Thursday evening because the next day, Friday was a high Sabbath day. The Romans broke the legs of the two thieves hanging with Jesus, but they did not break Jesus' legs because Jesus was already dead when they checked. If Jesus were not dead, it would have been obvious because he would have been pushing himself up and down on the cross to breathe. Now the Roman executioners speared Jesus in his side, piercing his chest. This was the method by which an executioner checked to see if a victim was in fact dead or not. Eyewitness accounts say that blood and water came out separated, indicating Jesus was already dead. If blood and pericardial fluid came out as in Jesus' case, it was an indication of death and there was no need for the legs to be broken to hasten death so that the cross could be used for the next victim. Romans were very careful to eliminate the possibility that anyone would survive an execution which had been ordered. Roman law laid the death penalty on anyone who bungled an execution. As a result, Roman executioners were experts. They would not have been fooled. Roman law required four executioners so that in case one man was a little lax, the other ones would catch him in it, and you would never have all four being lazy in signing the death warrant. If any of the Romans responsible had failed, those Roman guards would be putting their lives at risk. 
Discipline was severe with the Romans. For example, when the angel let Peter out of jail in Acts 12, Herod called in the guard and executed them all just for allowing one man out of jail. In Acts 16, the doors to the jail were opened by an earthquake for Paul and Silas, and their chains were removed. When the guards saw they were freed, he pulled out his own sword to execute himself. The reason was because the guard knew he would be executed if the prisoners escaped. He decided he would rather die by his own sword than to be executed by the Romans. Historically, only one account exists of a person surviving crucifixion. Flavius Josephus reported seeing three of his friends crucified. He quickly appealed to his friend, the Roman commander Titus, who ordered that all three be removed immediately and provided the best medical care Rome had to offer. In spite of this action, two of the three still died. For the time being, this concludes this episode. Please join me again for part two as we continue to examine the crucifixion, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. Now, if you have any questions about God, the Bible, or the Christian faith, I encourage you to send me an email at pastor underscore Yeshua at yahoo.com. That's P-A-S-T-O-R underscore Y-E-S-H-U-A at yahoo.com. Thank you for listening. Trust in